Hello, and welcome to another episode of Hiding Behind the Music Stand. We are your hosts, Francesca McNeely. And Mary Ferrillo. And with us today is our dear friend and the usual host of Hiding Behind the Music Stand, Patty Ryan. Woo! Class is class is It is a special, celebratory, birthday edition of Hiding Behind the Music Stand. And we will be talking about Patty. She will be answering the Spitfire questions for the first time herself. And you will finally get to know, does she prefer Mozart or Beethoven? Welcome, Patty, and thank you for being here. Oh my god, you guys are so good. (laughs) That was a blast. Thanks for having me. (laughs) We have all of the normal segments of this podcast planned. We also have some additional questions. We're going to talk about the podcast. We're going to talk about the pandemic. We're going to throw some additional fun categories that we've come up with your way. And we're really excited to talk to you. And I'm very nervous. (laughs) Now the tables have turned. Now you know how it feels. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) No, I also want to just say thank you so much for being my hosts for the very first birthday episode. And it's a blast and also just surreal that it's one year literally to the day that I started this whole thing. So I asked Francesca and Mary to be my hosts because they're just special people. They've also introduced me to so many of the guests in this past year. And they also are roommates and live together. And so it just made all sense to do this. (laughs) Well, Patty, I know it's been a very long year. How's everything? Oh, man. At this point, now I have two vaccines. So I'm finally outdoors and feeling like life is coming back to normal. But I'm still super excited about what to do with the upcoming podcast because I have a few new changes up my sleeve that will be exciting to share different perspectives of what we're going through in this transition period in the pandemic. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a really bizarre... I guess all parties present are two vaccines in... And it does really feel like the world has opened. I think it's probably because spring is happening at the same time. But it's like you literally opened your front door and you were like, it's beautiful outside. It's warmer weather. Also, I feel a little less terrified of existence. And yay, science. I actually felt this very unique, specific emotion when I got my first shot. Not necessarily my second, because I guess it was kind of like, oh, it's already, it's, you know, I was already vaccinated. But when I was getting my first shot afterward, I had this complete childlike invisibility invincibility feeling come back to me that I now was immune to this horrible disease and it was a giddiness that I haven't felt since I was probably 17 or 18 years old where really you know nothing could stop me at that age health wise unless a car ran into me or something but that's morbid but it just was a very unique emotion that I didn't expect to experience from a shot you know in the past you just take them for granted and think oh yeah of course this is your routine flu shot or of course I had to get my tetanus shot or whatever but this was like wow this is a new era of life yeah well one funny thing i've realized just from recent conversations because so many more especially musicians because you know a lot of people are teachers and stuff and so people have been able to get into the vaccine line early the new small talk is are you moderna or pfizer are you a g&j <laughs> right? like, what's your deal and it's, it's just kind of it's a, it's been funny to, to feel that this whole new kind of uh what's going on with you you know whatever small talk chatter <laughs> right strange times <laughs> yeah i know but hopefully better times yeah have you been concertizing i mean whether 
digitally or in person. Have you had an in-person concert yet? No, not in person. The quartet, Artaria String Quartet, has been doing virtual concerts every month ever since the pandemic. Nice. Well, really, almost a year ago now. And we've been very fortunate to continue to do that and to keep working. And actually, it's been more ambitious of us to do a concert a month because we usually had only four main season concerts throughout a year. And we would go out and teach. But in lieu of that, we decided to perform more and learn more repertoire. <laughs> so it's been actually really great to have that time together and be able to safely distance with masks rehearse and perform in Antonella Hall at McPhail Music Center of the Arts here in Minneapolis. And I've also been able to every now and then safely get together with one of my favorite groups that I play with, 10th Wave Chamber Music Collective. It's been such a great way of getting back together with good friends. Awesome. Well, on the subject of the pandemic, you know, obviously working from home has been quite the theme of the last year of our lives. And it's been a lot of really big changes for everybody. So we were just curious to know what's it been like for you to adapt to working from home and and specifically, how sushi dealing with it? Has it been <laughs> is sushi excited? Is sushi tired of you? How are things in the home life? <laughs> so should I talk about sushi first or should I talk about either, either way? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I actually feel rather fortunate that a lot of my work wasn't necessarily stuck at home. I was feeling that way at the very opening of the lockdown in March to July, June area. And I think that's where my inspiration and motivation to start a podcast came from that period of time of, well, what else can I do if I can't go on performing and if everyone's exhausted of these online concerts, you know, all this content that just flooded social media. So I suppose that's me now working from home is editing and interviewing. Other than that, I'm teaching from home on Zoom like many, but I hope that soon I will be able to teach in person, granted if my other students are also fully vaccinated and have waited the appropriate time. And of course, with masks. I mean, the hope is to no longer have to teach online anymore. So would you say that for a lot of people it was like, what am I going to do with this time? So one of our questions was, what is your most ambitious Corona project? But I feel like the answer was this podcast and you followed it <laughs> through and it's here and it's one year old. Yeah, no, absolutely. And had you asked me pre-April, really, if I was going to start a podcast, I would be like, are you joking? No way. Absolutely. Like, who wants to listen to that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> But it was a combination of being a guest on past guest Asia Myshak's podcast, Pour Me a Mozart, where she recorded over Zoom. And I realized, oh, that's actually something you can do during the pandemic. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, you know, everyone is kind of forgetting about us musicians. Maybe there's something else that we can provide other than music. We can provide our stories. I mean, I know a lot of people in the field and I know I've watched them exceed any expectations of themselves in their career and so like, let's talk about it. And so that was, yeah, this has definitely been the most ambitious thing I've ever thought to do and never would have thought to do. Well, we're very proud to see what you have accomplished. I mean, down to the branding, Missy. With the, <laughs> thank you for the keychains, yeah, hand sanitizer, body mist, bumper stickers, coasters. It's the full brand, full brand. <laughs> It's well, amazing. so you're welcome. But when I do these combined episodes with past guests, I usually like to give them a little gift to say thank you and something extra than just what I normally give my guests. This time around, I was like, hey, you know, I just made all these hand sanitizers. They're in my podcast shop <laughs> and I might as well give you guys a sample of them so that, you know, you can enjoy them and say how wonderful they are. <laughs> <laughs> they are wonderful. And it was nice because you, I mean, you tailored all the sense to like our enjoyments and everyone is very content. Also, this is a sponsored post. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hashtag ad. Yes. Ad. <laughs> well, and I, I love that we're talking about it like this because I feel like it's so easy to talk about the negatives of the last year. Obviously, anytime yeah. there's sort of like a groundswell of change, it's really easy to talk about the aspects of it that weren't what we wanted. So I would love to hear what your favorite pandemic memory was. I'd like to turn that on its head. It's a tough question because I think like many, we look back at our pandemic life and we kind of see it as a blur of many things. It does and, mush together. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if I can say one specific moment that was like, well, this is the best moment that happened. And I don't think that's what you're asking either. But the moment that I was able to perform outdoors with my quartet for an audience after not having that for a long time and not knowing when to do so again. That was a precious moment and one that I will never forget. And the comments from the audience afterward when they approached the stage, I'm doing air quotes, the comments that would come from the audience and just their gratefulness. And someone said that it was their first time seeing a string quartet ever perform live. Mm. I mean, wow, like that's something that you don't, I mean, maybe the pandemic gave her this thought to pursue something different and she liked it, you know? And I think that that's something inspiring for me to keep going and gives me purpose yet again to be a musician. Yeah, you know, speaking of which, it's always weird to talk about this because obviously the pandemic is still huge. happening. <laughs> it's still happening, but also it was a huge hit for everybody. I mean, yep. and especially musicians, you know, a lot of people lost work, lost concerts, lost opportunities. It was, you know, things came to a grinding halt. A number of friends of mine have reevaluated their career options and mm -hmm. have just permanently yes. switched out. You know, it's been a trying time for a lot of people. But that being said, there was something I actually wound up really appreciating about the slowdown. And I say that as somebody who is sometimes a little too type A and too much go, go, go to actually be forced to not for two seconds really has had like an impact on me of just really being able to slow down and really look at how you're living your life and to like realize, okay, what are the things like going to the gym that like really give me sanity? And it turns out that if I, is this something I want to cultivate in my life or making bread, like yeah. and, and little things you've realized, like having it has really meant a lot, particularly at a time when you had nothing else kind of going on. I, it feels weird because it feels like so indulgent to be able to say that. But I know that there's certain things that I've really taken stock of as things that I just want to reprioritize my life around, you know, post-pandemic. Yeah. And so I guess I was wondering for you, have there been any sort of things that were brought to light in the pandemic that you kind of maybe want to hold on to in a post-pandemic life? I think more than ever, I've come to realize how important our relationships are with one another. Again, I suppose that's why I have the podcast. It's just a simple attempt to reach out to old friends and colleagues to see how they're doing and see what is inspiring them, what's keeping them going too. And it's also sharing that with my listenership, you know, and having people come to a place that they can relate with each other, even if they don't know them, even if they're not familiar with this person and say, hey, you know, this person's doing something pretty Pretty cool maybe I could try that you know and give them a little bit of an introduction or confidence to do something that maybe they didn't have before so I think to me that's my biggest takeaway is really not taking the people in your life for granted well and I think we get into routines and we don't question them like you just right. you find a way that you do something and it's been working so you don't question it and you keep going and I feel like because everything was halted suddenly it was like well why is that the way I work why is this mm -hmm. the way I interact why is this status quo something I've just accepted and now that I have to rethink it now that I have to reframe it how can I improve it and how can it fit into my life better I mean mm -hmm. even just like dumb things like 
practice. Like I used to literally think that I just could not practice where I lived. I just got into the groove. Like there was like a practice pod that I loved at the hall. It was in the basement. Right. I went there. I went there I was gonna at say. 7.30 every morning. Yep. I wouldn't leave the hall. I would be there from like 7.30 in the morning till 10 p.m. Because I was like, well, I can only practice there and I might as well just practice there. And I convinced myself that there was like a way that I made things work that I never questioned. And now, because obviously I had to practice at home. <laughs> I learned that like I can practice at home. I can practice at any time of day at home. <laughs> I can retain the information just as well because I did it at home. And so like moving forward, I have right. to remember that like, oh no, you don't have to wake up at 6 a.m. to get to the hall by seven. Like you can have a slightly more leisurely morning. You can still warm up at home. Like I, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. a quality of life thing came literally just because the world was like, no, you literally are not allowed to do that. You have to re right. like reframe your world and think about it slightly differently. Are the things that I plan on jumping right back to a second the world reopens? Absolutely. But yes, yeah, it's the adaptability of many of us. And I think that's something that maybe we didn't know about that we had that quality inside us with the routines that were working just fine before the pandemic. So that's my big takeaway from what you're saying now, Mary. Now, and speaking of routines, and just to circle back to a question from before, you know, there's been this funny joke going around that in the pandemic, you know, everyone's dogs are like having the best time of their lives because it's like, human, human, you're here and they're happy. And cats are ready to murder their owners <laughs> how is sushi doing <laughs> She is very good. It's funny because I think for the first couple weeks, at least of the lockdown, she was very confused and she needed her space. Let's just put it that way. And you were probably and feeling so, extra needy. You're like, I just need all the love from my cat right now. And she's like, mom, well, leave me alone. I, I mean, I'm always that way. I think that's just my default. But I noticed that she was spending more time on my bed. And I was maybe on the couch and I was wondering, where is she? How come she's not near me? And I was like, okay, I got to respect her space. Like she just isn't used to me being around all the time. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, we have definitely had way more cuddle sessions than I ever expected. There's certain behaviors from her that she electively chooses to curl up and sit next to me rather than me forcing her on my lap or something along those lines. And I'm actually at this point a little bit worried what will happen when I get a more regular schedule because I think she meows at the door sometimes when I leave, you know? So yeah. I'm like, oh, poor Sush. Maybe I should get another cat. Oh, <laughs> well. The, the well, you know, it's funny because my pandemic started basically with me. I knew that enough work was canceled that I was going to at least be able to be in the same spot as my dog and boyfriend for like right. a chunk of time. And of course that kept expanding and that kept, so then I ended up being there for a much longer time. And our dog absolutely loves his people, was super excited that we were around all the time, didn't question it. He's very well crate trained. He likes going into his crate, but we had gotten into a habit where he didn't always need to be in the crate when we left yeah. the house. And then we noticed that because we were around all the time, when we left him, he never ate anything horrible for himself, but we noticed like when we came home, it was clear he was beginning to get anxious. So now he's like, yeah. he has to be in the crate. Us not being there and him having free reign had become an issue that had never been yeah. there before. And I do think it was because we went from having a routine where we were regularly in and out and he was regularly sometimes alone for chunks of time to him just always having someone with him. So I feel bad about that. But <laughs> I, that's the thing. As easily as both of our pets adapted to our presence there, they will, I believe and I hope that they will be able to adapt back to what the future life is, not pre-pandemic life, but a post-pandemic life. And us is, too. You know? We will be able to adapt to the new <laughs> <laughs> and now a comic 
question. Okay. But uh, but very serious. But very serious. Very serious The question. people want to know, Patty. This was the year of comfortable clothes. Were you a leggings person or a sweatpants person? Oh my God. If anyone has ever seen me in the Twin Cities during pandemic, <laughs> they know I was a huge leggings person. I like jumped off the deep end. That's essentially all that I wear now. I'm going to change that. It was me giving up because I was like, well, what's the point? I'm just going to... Waistbands are just constricting and you know what? I mean, <laughs> I never thought I would be, but currently pandemic Patty has been a leggings person. That's interesting. I was definitely team sweatpants. We are both wearing ours <laughs> right now. <laughs> and there was a horrible moment where I was like, I need to buy more because like I'm not wearing my jeans. I don't want to be like between the same two pairs every like other day. I can't <laughs> yeah. do laundry that often. Patty, are you ready for the Spitfire questions? Oh my God. Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) I feel like I've given some of my answers away, sprinkled throughout other episodes. Sure. So maybe some of my more loyal listeners will already know or predict some of my answers. Well, maybe part of this is how well do you know Patty? That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, pause after every question and say what you think the answer is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is really just a pop quiz for your listeners, let's be honest. Yeah, right. Okay. Drum roll. <laughs> Patty, Mozart or Beethoven? Beethoven. Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Shostakovich. I just got shade from Francesca. Wow. On what? Okay. Which one? On Shostakovich okay. versus Prokofiev? She said Shostakovich. Yeah, I know. I didn't okay, like it either. But... <laughs> okay. I forgot okay. we're on camera. Sorry. I will, may <laughs> I just say, Because I feel like when you asked me this question, I felt like great conflict because I feel like there's so many wonderful things in both of their like oeuvres. I don't even know how to say that word. In there, they, uh, they both uh, did good things. It's uh, okay. She, yeah, you go. <laughs> um, and the connection I feel to a Shostakovich thing is like very intense. But I just can never get over the Romeo and Juliet. So Prokofiev, Romeo and Juliet. So. May I you may, argue you may, my side of them? You may <laughs> for argue. The defense, explain. For the defense. Yes. A candidate may express her desire. <laughs> okay. The reason why I said Shostakovich is because that is for most of my life who I've gravitated towards. For the longest time, I simply did not understand Prokofiev's music. And that's mainly because I never really played much of his music. I think it was really until my later education that I ever got to play a symphony, a piano concerto, orchestral piano concerto of his, or even the cello sonata. And I think it really was the cello sonata that really opened up my view of this is the world of Prokofiev that I've been missing and I understand it now. So I say out of historical purposes Shostakovich and I frankly speaking I think Shostakovich wrote better string quartets and I, as a string quartet member I, I have was to gonna go with say because you had you said Beethoven and Shostakovich and I was like ah string quartets which is why I didn't even look up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but Mozart but Mozart has wonderful string quartets too but and Beethoven Mozart has the quintets I'm just gonna say. Yeah the quintets are true but you, yeah I mean you can't get closer to true Nirvana. Prof- Nir- yeah, sure. Let's use that word. You can't get closer to Nirvana in a string quartet if you leave out the Beethoven string quartet. No, it's true. And I said Mozart yeah. for my answer, and then I like regretted it. No, I didn't regret it. I still love Mozart, but like the thought of like one Opus 132, I just... It's just that treasure trove that keeps on giving. And you, as you get older, you realize more and more depth to each quartet and each movement. And it's just wonderful. And I think <laughs> anyway, Shostakovich but... offers that too. I mean, like we did the string orchestra version of one eight. of his quartets. Number eight. eight. Is, yeah. Number eight, it's probably. It's just, yeah. you know, yeah. it's one of the most powerful things you'll ever play. That's one of my yeah. favorite performance memories ever is actually getting oh, wow. to play that piece. And I think the genius behind Shostakovich, genius, I mean, 
in the sense that he was oppressed and had to do it this way for the most part. Genius in the simplicity of what he wrote on the page and the gravitas of actually what his implications are. It's so simple yet so complex. Will you allow it, Francesca? Just let it slide on in. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Friendship intact. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Oh, dear. You're number three. Netflix or video games? Video games. And that would make Ari very happy. (laughs) But I say video games because I very much enjoy the puzzling of these games. I love that, too, because I don't know. There's something really engaging about a well-crafted video game. Yes. Something that makes you think. And what has been your pandemic game? Like, what have you... Many. But I would say the top few are Zelda... Skyrim, for a while it was Stardew and Animal Crossing, Mario Kart if I'm playing with a lot of people, Mm -hmm. and then most recently Hollow Knight. Oh, is that one of the scary ones? It has bugs in it. Okay. Well, no, no, no. I just know there's yes. some. No, I, so, yes. I just know that there are like some games that are genuinely terrifying mm. that I mean, I don't really play. No, okay. Hollow Knight, you're this little ninja knight thing and you're swarming. Oh, like going Knight, around and you're like. like, like with a K? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. I was like, Hollow Knight, Knight sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a relatively cheap game for an endless game. It's just, I even yesterday was discovering new worlds that I never, I thought the game surely must be over. Mm. Nope, the map still expanding kind of thing okay let's keep blasting through our spitfire basil cilantro cilantro i feel like oh my god that's like the most often one i kept you're like most often disappointed with your guests you're like oh, yes. another basil person <laughs> yes i know i know scratch off the reinvite In my list defense, <laughs> no. i love cilantro too it's just i can't deny basil i know That's why I posed that question, because I think it's one that could be very alienating. Like, for me, it's, like, obviously cilantro, but for many, it's, like, they can't choose between. So it's cuisine geographic. I actually think that's huge, because, like, I realized as a person of Italian descent, like, I felt like I had to choose basil, and I do love pesto, but there's so many cuisines that use cilantro that I love. And, like, cilantro is that, like, pop of brightness at the end that, like, it just tastes of green and in a great way. And I cilantro is, in many ways, the more versatile choice. Like, it appears in so many incredible dishes. A good choice. I applaud your choice. Oh, thank you. I'm just very grateful that I don't have that gene that makes it taste like soap. Yeah. Okay. Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? Not Lord of the Rings. Very much not Lord of the Rings. My childhood. My whole life. I realize that. I'm very sorry in retrospect for being very <laughs> aggressive. About I realize that. this podcast episode is supposed to be about you, but that felt like a personal attack. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the question is Harry Potter or Star Wars, Patty Ryan. So so I put Star Wars down in I guess the first third of the episodes because the whole business with JK Rowling and her not supporting transgender peoples, I was just upset. And I thought, well, like, I mean, Harry Potter is such an ingrained part of our childhood that you can't ignore it. But maybe if I add a third option, more people would go to that. And in that spirit, I would say to not support J.K. Rowling, I would say Star Wars. However, I am really not anywhere close to being someone that really is well-versed. Although, fun fact, Kelly Marie Tran and I were classmates in middle school, but she probably doesn't remember me. And that's okay because she's super famous now. But she was really nice. She was super nice. And hence why we were friends. 
But fun fact. <laughs> I think really ultimately to be really true without her unfortunate views on humanity, I would have to say Harry Potter because I just wished to be at Hogwarts my entire life. Well, flying on through this this next one, I know how it's going to be. Yeah, we know um, this answer. Symphony or chair music? Coffee or tea? I was, I was just <laughs> leaving. No, I was just leaving pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> the rum roll. Obviously, yeah, chamber music. Yeah. I think anyone who's ever known me throughout any part of my life, maybe with the exception of my first year at Tanglewood, that's why I wanted to go to Tanglewood is to really experience a really good orchestral experience to see if I wanted to go down that route. But no, chamber music. Yeah. Well, sorry, you skipped it. Coffee or tea? Tea. I don't drink coffee. And I bring tea to most of my rehearsals in the morning if I can. So yeah, very you're much the inspiration. tea. And all teas. No, you're the inspiration behind what I call the tea pooper, which my mother bought me one Yes. I don't think that's the official um, marketing name of the product. It drops the tea out of the bottom, so it kind of feels like you're flushing your toilet when you put it on top of a mug. <laughs> I call it the tea pooper. Sounds great. Product. See, wouldn't appetizing. it be the tea pier because it's liquid? Yeah, but tea pooper just has it rings off the. Okay, it, it I mean, flows off the tongue a little better. Yeah, I don't know if one can say that about anything with <laughs> poop in it, but anyways, rolls off the tongue. Anyways, moving on, Mary. <laughs> okay, so now we get favorite practice room. So I think I must do a few, if that's okay. I'm going to permiss it for myself because, you know, it's my podcast, so fine. I would say John michel Fontenot's studio was a place where I really grew a lot, even when he wasn't there. It just felt like his presence was in the room regardless. But I just spent so much time in that room practicing. I just have a lot of memories of really deep dive focus. Nothing in the world else matters right now in that room. And it was the room where you can look out and you can see... It's the same tree that we talked about on Ari's episode, where there's just this lone tree on this mountain in San Francisco. And I always pictured myself sitting under that tree and practicing in isolation, really, you know? I have to also say room 507 at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, because we ended up naming that my trio's name. Trio 507 ended up being the name, because we spent so much time in that room rehearsing, so I have to do a shout out to that room. And then I would say Tanglewood, the huts, and Domain Frege's huts, which I also talked about with David Gonzalez on his episode. I think it's just any space that you feel like you can truly be with your instrument. If you feel like the outside world is banging on your door, that's so difficult to navigate. And so any space, like what you said, suddenly it was you and your instrument and you were going to just get things done. That if like, if, if there's a space that you can find that like presents that atmosphere, you you found a good spot. Yeah. For me, I do gain inspiration from what I look around in my space. Mm -hmm. So I'm not someone that likes a sterile environment. I need something else to visualize myself, like that mountain with that one lone tree on it or something, you know? Those are my answers. Well, favorite professor shout out. Wan, okay, here's a few. I have to say Norman Fisher because, my God, how many times did I mention him on the podcast thus far? <laughs> okay, so thank you, Norman, for being such a wonderful human being and having such patience with me and with so many of his students. And oh, yes. Anyway, we love you very much. Indeed. Also, I must say John michel Fontenot because all the similar things I just said about Norm, John michel was so patient with me, and I feel like he really understood and really helped develop me into who I am today as a cellist and also as a person and helped me understand some of the hurt and pain I've experienced in the past and how that translates to me 
me as a cellist. And there's so many, but I think my final one will have to be Mark Sokol, who mm. I've also mentioned on the podcast many times because I want his memory to continue because he really touched me, especially with chamber music. If I didn't go to San Francisco Conservatory and if he was not teaching there, I would not be a chamber musician today. It's because of him and his verve and his determination and his complete commitment to the art of string quartet playing and beautiful music. I just love him dearly and I wish he were still here with us today. Rest in peace. He was wonderful. All of them are wonderful. Yeah, he was one of my last quartet lead coaches at Tanglewood. I never mm-hmm. had him. That is one of my great regrets Aww. is that I never... Well, it's not like you could... I mean, maybe if you went up to him and asked him, he would definitely... He was one of those teachers that he would give you time. He'd find time to sit down and listen to you. I don't even but... think I ever had him in a master class either. Like, I was trying to remember who I played for in quartet week master classes, and I, it's possible I had him, but I don't think so. Someone will be like, Mary, of course you didn't. I'll be like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> but i think his teaching expanded beyond what he taught in a coaching or in a master class and i think that all the people that he has influenced over the years have shared many of his knowledge and insight to many of our colleagues and who we are and you know that sort of thing so he still lives with us it's just yeah miss him a lot well this is a perfect segue then because these are musical heroes of all of ours and we would like to know your most inspired musical hero of any genre just open it all up it can still be Mark Sokol <laughs> so I have done a, a little bit of thinking on this and I'm just gonna stick with it today because I know in the past I've said Freddie Mercury and that is still very true Freddie Mercury and Queen really got me to understand the bravery it takes to stand up and be truly yourself a hundred percent with no asking of any forgiveness or apologies right with that aside I am going to stick with my answer as of today mm-hmm. and that's Yo-Yo Ma I never would have thought I would have said him in the sense that I grew up not necessarily thinking he was my favorite cellist, but that's not why I'm I'm selecting him for this question. I think it's just the breadth of his reach as a cellist classical musician and I am floored by what he's been able to do and how he's been able to be a part of the collective conscience of our world he's just a household name everyone knows yet his level of celebrity is not something that is tarnished by any means it's, if anything it's just held up higher amazing answer he's also a kind individual and generous as well Indeed. of my experience yeah um, yeah that's what I've seen as well well speaking of transformative people what was your most transformative performance experience so this one actually i have a few but i think i will answer my most earliest transformative experience because there i gotta save some stories right (laughs) so this is the story of when i actually decided hey i might have a shot doing music professionally Not when I necessarily decided to do it, but this was the experience that tipped me over to think, hey, this is something. So I was third chair in my youth orchestra, San Diego Youth Symphony, and the principal just couldn't make that rehearsal for some reason. So my conductor, Jeff Edmonds, pushed the outside row up. So all of a sudden I was principal cello in the top orchestra and I, you know, was panicking, but okay, here I am in the hot seat. Never been here before. 
we were playing Rimsky-Korsakov's Capriccio Espanol. And in that, I think it's the fourth movement or third movement, one of the middle movements, there's a cello solo. And before this rehearsal, I was just for fun practicing my part, but practicing the solo just to say, you know, I wonder what this feels like. or I kind of want to see how I would play it. So we get to the spot where we're rehearsing that movement. And okay, my nerves are starting to get up. Oh my God, I'm, my hands are sweating. Oh my, I'm getting nervous. Will he cut us off before we get to the solo? And then sure enough, no, he doesn't. So I'm like, okay, I'm trying to find that C out of nowhere. It's in the middle of God knows my hand's not big enough. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I just let go and I play that melody. After I finished, I think my con conductor, he just stopped the orchestra. And I got this wave of applause from the entire orchestra. I love this story. And it was, I did not think I had that in me, first of all. Second of all, I was scared out of my mind. I don't even know what really happened, but I guess I played in tune and it sounded pretty good. And I think getting that recognition, and I remember my sister being really proud of me afterward because she was in the orchestra too. So, you know, I didn't want to bring any dishonor to my family name or anything <laughs> like that, you know? But yeah, it was one of those moments that I thought, hey, I maybe can do this. This is something that's possible. And that's one of the stories of one of my most transformative performance experiences. Oh, it's perfect. I feel like you can't ignore the first moment that you like have to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. The moment you're like, it can get more stressful. Oh, look, I lived. This was fine. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, you wouldn't know what the reaction is going to be. And then the reaction being so positive and so supportive and everyone afterward saying, wow, that sounded so good was just, wow, I guess I have something. I guess this is something unique about me Yay. that I can exploit or something. <laughs> <laughs> and consequently, years after I was principal for the orchestra. Awesome. But said. Well, if that was one of your first transformative performances, what is the next piece you would like to learn? Where does the journey continue? I really want to learn Steve Reich different trains. Oh, I love that piece. <gasps> I have my list yes, of things. That is on my yeah. That's a string quartet piece performing with a pre-recorded tape. And right. the journey is I'm trying to remember the story behind it. It's a mix of two stories. Because when he was young, his parents were divorced and it was East Coast, West Coast. Right, so right, he right, would right. when as a as a young child, he had like a nanny or someone who would accompany him, but he often would take the train back and forth cross country right. to visit his parents. But the and actual he... story is the analogy of the trains the Jews took in, you know, in Germany off to the concentration camps so um, right. what he does is he takes all these interviews and it's a mix of like I think actual just train conversations and things he overheard riding trains but also then interviews of survivors of some of the concentration camps in the holocaust and, and, the, and the, the recording is broken up so it's not yeah. just like it's not like a long form story it's like people repeating syllables and phrases and words and it's the movement about the concentration camp is just claustrophobic yeah. like you feel it's funny the things that minimalism lends itself to the drama mm -hmm. that it like that Oh, excellent choice, Patty. Excellent choice. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's thank you for also remembering the full story because I was like, I know bits and pieces and I'm like, I should know because I said it's my one I want to play next. <laughs> well, and, I, and I know I knew the story. I just like, yeah, kind no, of it's, couldn't it's piece very it powerful. And it's string yeah. quartet, recorded string quartet. It's, I think it's a total, it, it's a triple recorded quartet, isn't it? It's technically four string quartets performing because they were, they talked, or three quartets performing. I think performing. it's three. You're right. Um, so two pre-recorded, one live because I know there was that talk about doing it live, 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 live once, but... 
Yeah, so I think any quartet that plays it plays with Kronos, technically. <laughs> They're the ones who make right. the track. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other than that, I just feel a very important purpose to continue to play George Rothberg's music. And that's just, again, from the lineage of my mentors of the Concord String Quartet, Norman Fisher and Mark Sokol. I have recently played his Recordanza, and I sat down with Norman, and he sang at me, as <laughs> everyone knows. Yeah. But he sang, he sang things at me. He explained why the recording is such a way and explain George's way of playing the piano and I just feel like that is our purpose in music is to continue to pass down these stories I recently had this conversation with a few friends of mine in book club where history is not something that you just read in in a textbook history is the relationships over generations Mm -hmm. and how we continue to remember things and the importance of passing those stories down so I should say I started learning his aria which is kind of cello-esque sonata Mm -hmm. that was written for Norman. I guess I would say as a soloist, I would love to learn that. Yeah, you know, kind of related. I feel like as performers, we kind of forget that we actually have a lot of agency in what becomes history, right? It's it's like who we choose to to have fill concert halls. Like oftentimes we we can be the ones to make those decisions. Like we can be decision makers. And I think we sometimes think that it's this passive thing of, oh, well, this is just a great composer because they're a great composer. It's like, no, it's because people love their music. So it was played a lot and then played more and then played more. And just as easily not playing someone can send a message as well. And I um this yeah. is oh this is such a great topic too because I was hearing someone talk about book prizes recently and the idea of like why book prizes exist and like Pulitzers the, and Booker like Prize and, and, yeah. and someone made a point of saying the women's prize exists because not enough women authors were getting recognition acknowledged in that field and someone pointed out who's very in the know about publishing basically said what you don't remember from history is that there can be people who are incredibly popular read all the time played all the time like they're the rage but these prizes and things exist and if they don't recognize some of those people you're gonna just gravitate to the people who the prize like later on you're just gonna be like oh well who won the Nobel prize in like 19 blank yeah and then you're mm-hmm. and then you're like you don't dig deeper you don't look further so the women's prize exists now it's obviously a different landscape for women in publishing than it used to be but the point was more that like if something has won a prize it's more likely to be remembered it's more likely to go down into a canon because they're like oh well such and such won that prize that year and I felt like that was really relevant to what we do in terms of music the idea that we as the performers people listen to you when you say what your favorite piece is people remember that like oh Patty Ryan told me how much she loves George Rockberg and that like makes an impact and the agency that we have as performers just to put that into the concert hall is big just this weekend learned a piece that um, is now getting a lot of traction but it's Samuel Coles Shaler's Clarinet Quintet so he was an Afro-British composer he studied in Europe and I guess when he was in school I guess this must have been in, in Germany or Austria I think one of his conducting a assignments in a class was to write a cheer, piece of cheer music that would rival Brahms and so he wrote this piece mm-hmm. this piece is it's great it's a gorgeous second movement in general it does remind me and it's hard to not like associate certain colors with Brahms because that's just what I know better right. and so I, I think so of the F something. major sonata there's like moments that really touch on yeah. that but it, it's completely original it doesn't feel derivative it just feels but you know the language reminds me of that but apparently the piece was incredibly popular at the time that it was written it was played very frequently and I just find it fascinating that I had never heard of it until a month ago right and, and, and you know the Callus Quartet just put out a recording with Anthony 
Gill, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. but there hasn't been a lot of traction on it. And it's weird that something like that could have been so popular at the time, but disappears you know, over a generation, right? Right. And people have many stories as to why that happens. And of course, I'm not. Well, but I think the idea of what the it, establishment but... decides. Oh God. Right. Is this going to get too weird? No, no. But there's, there's <laughs> yeah, there's a whole conversation too. It's like there's just... the people who are making the decisions are definitely sometimes very far removed and up in the ivory towers. And well, you and know. like in terms of literature, like one of the major points, it's like women have been published and read profusely. It's just that they were women's literature, so right. it wasn't necessarily like it was poo-pooed by like what it was. So like right. you can be popular and popularity doesn't actually the establishment doesn't necessarily support exactly that over time. And yeah. that's so huge for Rockberg's story too, because Rockberg in rejecting the popular compositional style at the time by like reverting back to romanticism and saying, no, this is what speaks to my soul was lambasted. And there, there were people were like, oh, well, you, we can no longer Rockberg. And you're like, incorrect. He's great. That's correct. <laughs> He's no. still here. And funny enough, he didn't win a Pulitzer either. So right. similarly, I feel more of an onus to carry on his legacy in a way and, and his stories. And just briefly, I mean, his eldest son died right. so prematurely. Yeah. And it was highly tragic, which is why he reverted back to tonality when what was popular in the community at the time was serialism. And, and that's interesting, too, because that's not a new phenomena. Like, let's look at Wozzeck. Like, let's mm-hmm. look at Berg. Those interludes, orchestral interludes, eventually, at this tragic moment, as the story progresses, it becomes more tragic and more tragic. There is a moment that feels purely romantic. And it's because that's something that he knew his audience. He wanted the depths of emotion that your audience right. would react, how they would absorb that information. And, they, and he knew that the answer was romanticism. So right. I feel like right. it's easy in the ivory tower to just be like, oh, well, that's just romantic. And you're like, the audience's reaction to something matters. Is it a folk song that they right. know? Is it colloquial language? Like these are the things that we like latch onto as a listener. Yeah. And yeah. it's not a cheap yeah. trick. It, it means something. That's absolutely right. No, this is actually the perfect sequitur into our, our the next question we were going to ask you, which you've actually probably already answered half of it for us. But we wanted you to choose one composer that you think is overrated and possibly overprogrammed. And then on the flip side, uh, pick a composer for us that you think is underrated and underprogrammed. For overprogrammed, I'm going to say Beethoven. Ooh. I don't think he's overrated, mm-hmm. but I think he's overprogrammed. Sure. And I'm super controversial for saying that. I maybe shouldn't say that. No, no I don't okay. think it's overrated. Have... No, 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 because... Because I think... Well, because I have a Beethoven cycle to finish. (laughs) Oh, no, but... No, 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 no. Because I think the question is, do you use Beethoven as a crutch? Like, when you're programming, is Beethoven something you're saying, oh, well, we should find a Beethoven? Right. Or is it... There are a lot of, like, orchestras that will do that, right? Where it's like, well, every year, let's do all the Beethovens and let's every, you know... So I think it's okay to say overprogrammed. It doesn't... You you mean you were very clear, overprogrammed and not overrated by any means, but just very present. Is there a composer you think is overrated? I feel like this is the ultimate, I don't care much for Job, like, <laughs> line. I don't care much Overrated. for Job. Rafe Von Williams. I'm thrilled to hear you say that. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, for the billionth year in a row, it's like the BBC, it's like some news organization in the UK does like a, what's your favorite composer? And it's, or a piece, and they always pick the Lark Ascending. It's like one every year for the last, like, 50 years or I exaggerated, probably not that many, but like, a lot. And I just, if someone could explain it to me, why? <laughs> yeah, maybe to a violinist would have a better time. Some of the symphonies I've really loved, 
there's always like a moment in a Vaughn Williams that I appreciate. But I'm still not but even a whole... huge fan of Thomas Tallis, personally. Okay, you can leave, exit that way. <laughs> <laughs> Do not with the British. It's just, my it's British just not one of my favorite pieces. But I oh, I thought you meant the composer. It. I was like, leave my space. Oh, 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 no, no, no. No, the variations the theme on a, yeah, yeah. The Rafe Vaughn Williams piece on a theme of Thomas Tallis. But yeah, that piece, I know so many people are gushing and say it's so beautiful and luscious and it is I just doesn't resonate with me very much and that's okay I don't have to like everything Mm-mm. and then I guess the next part of this question was what yeah. is a composer you believe to be underrated and underprogrammed and I feel like the and I believe was... that would have I think that's just a natural let's just go with that for today and next year I'll maybe say something different. perfect <laughs> okay we have one final one that we came up with which we we're very excited about because it ties into yes. our shared history of Tanglewood Patty you have been invited for the rare fourth summer at TMC and you get to organize a showcase concert. What TMC faculty is in your ensemble? Who is coaching? Norman Fisher. (laughs) Who is coaching you? And um, what piece is in my... Norman Fisher? Norman, Norman <laughs> no, no, no. Fisher. Okay, I'm going to do this question Fisher, again. Fisher, Fisher. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Okay, I'm going to rephrase. <laughs> There are a couple of components to the answer. So what TMC faculty is in your ensemble? Who is coaching you? And what piece or pieces will you play? Obviously, Norman Fisher is going to play with me. Okay. <laughs> so I it want has to have group. two cellos. Whatever it is, there's two cellos. Yeah, it's got to have two. So Schubert's on the menu. Schubert, Rockberg, cello quintets. There you go. Oh, two pieces done. Down. So who's coaching um, you? Or is it? Or are you uncoached? You can be uncoached. But, but I have- would like to be uncoached. Okay. If that's okay. And I would have to have Andrew Jennings there. Get the trifecta. <gasps> Love I have to. Andrew Jennings. Gotta get the Concord Quartet. I mean, the thing, though, is doesn't the faculty sort of change every year? I know, the... but it's just more like who of the people that you were there with would you? I mean, you... they're the most constant regardless. Yeah. So yeah. I'd have to just I would have to play with them. Yeah. Excellent yeah. answers. Okay. So obviously because. Oh, my God. Did I make it? You yeah. made it. You made it to you the end of our, our either or many things. Our pressure These cooker are... questions. So well, should we should we take a little break? I think we should take a break. Okay. Oh. So and okay. Wow. And hey. with that, we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Before we exited the first half, Patty had successfully survived the Spitfire questions, Phew. but she's not actually done. Wait, what? We are here to celebrate you, Patty, and we would like to introduce a new podcast round that we like to call Pick a Patty, Patty. (laughs) Oh my God, what? That's so many patties. So many peas. Oh, there are so many patties. There's so many patties. So basically the premise is similar to Spitfire, but you don't have to explain unless you want to, but we are going to present you with some patties and you're going to choose the best patty. The best patty, Patty. Oh my God. Okay. I'm scared. <laughs> Here we mean? go. Pick a patty, any patty, but only the best patty. May the best patty win. May the best patty win. Here we go. Okay. Category one. Pick the best cartoon patty. One. Peppermint patty from the Peanuts. Two. Aunt Patty from the Simpsons. Or three. Patty mayonnaise from Doug. I have to go with peppermint patty because I used to read Charles Schultz all the time. There's also two patties in that, in the Peanuts. There's peppermint patty and there's a patty, like a straight up patty. <laughs> who I related more with. Not Well, I don't know. Peppermint patty was a little bit of a tomboy, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe even a mixture of both. But I have to go with peanuts the- patty. Peanuts patty. Peanuts patties. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, second question. Pick a singing patty. Do you choose? 
choose punk rocker and poet Patti Smith or Broadway singer Patti Lapone? You know, I don't know enough about either of them. So I feel like my answer would be an uneducated. Okay. It would just okay. be like a so random. So next one. Pick a Patty from the Scream. Wonder Woman's writer and director, Patty Jenkins, or Star Trek's Nurse Ogawa, Patty Yasutake. Similar to question number two, I don't know enough about either of them. Not Patty. You need to know more about your sci-fi. Okay. Then we can just jump to the final one, which you will have an opinion about. Yes. What is the best patty, Patty? Impossible burger or veggie patty? I've never had an impossible burger, so I have to go with veggie patty. You are missing out. I'm You're just missing out say. on a very good patty. A very good. You've patty. limited Although your patties. I'm not huge, I'm not a huge. I don't necessarily enjoy the taste of beef. I don't think it tastes like beef. No, it's definitely more the texture and the experience of eating a burger. I wouldn't say I it's the taste that, of a burger necessarily. I think that also weirds me out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I will try an impossible burger in the future, but I'm gonna stick with my veggie patties. Okay, they've been treating me with very well over the years okay patty. i'm sorry i you feel survived. like i just i feel like you're just I mean, like a bad example of a patty but i mean <laughs> for, for your for your viewers there's a lot of patties that patty is not aware of she's she's just like a one patty kind of gal <laughs> which and is okay because i get it she, because she is the best patty she, she is herself. i mean yes we could have put her in here but we thought okay maybe not because everyone's gonna say patty but you gotta read up I on mean, your patties patty i know we like, just opened a world about... of patties that's what it is <laughs> What are your thoughts on peppermint patty, the candy? It's an excellent candy. That's no, I want to know what Patty thinks no, about Patty. I don't know what, 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 what Patty <laughs> I like it. It's minty fresh, which was one of my nicknames in undergrad. Okay. And what are your thoughts on patty cake? Like my, what I make? My, oh. <laughs> For listeners, they were actually doing the hand coordination game patty cake. I don't think I've ever played patty cake at all in my life. I know. I guess apparently I'm ashamed to my name and I didn't know. Wow, Patty. Patty, you might have been demoted from a from, from no the land patty. of patties. I think you're, I don't know. Patricia. I don't know what to call it. Patricia, Patricia, I guess. Patricia. Yeah. So Patricia. <laughs> I'm melting. <laughs> She's not a real patty at all. You can also cut that entire <laughs> section if you would like. That was more just fun for us. We enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> Well, I just am shocked that I didn't was supposed to have such pride of being a patty. <laughs> yeah, you. I mean, they named a day after you, March seventeenth. It's not how that worked. It's a patty, and that's it, all patties. <laughs> <laughs> so, Patricia Ryan. Oh, geez, not that. <laughs> Please, can you walk us through your musical life? Because I know you've had a chance to talk to so many of your guests about their journeys, but we haven't really gotten to hear your journey. How did you find the cello, and what were the steps that brought you to where you are today? Sure. So I was first a pianist at age seven, and I was instructed to play piano because my sister, who was older than me by about two years, started piano lessons. And so therefore, younger sibling at the same age has to start. Simultaneously with starting piano lessons, I also was taking ballet. And I did that for about six months. And at one point, my mom sat me down and she said, Patty, we cannot do both of these activities for you any longer. Which do you choose to continue? Well, in my brain. I said, I think music's going to last my lifetime longer than dance will, even though I loved ballet. I loved dancing, but I chose music because I thought it had a better investment value. So I kept on with piano and I sometimes look back and I wonder if I should have chosen ballet, you know, one of those things, Mm. but here we are today. So I played piano and I had an amazing, speaking of influential teachers, 
I had an incredible piano teacher named Arlene Anton. If she's out there, I've tried finding her contact information. I would love to get in touch with her again because she, if it weren't for her, I would not be the musician I am today by any means. She just was so good at setting me up with proper technique, proper practice technique, proper aural skills, and sight reading. Well, eh. <laughs> I'm not so great at sight reading anymore. <laughs> but theory. Every, it was just, she is, might as well have ditched me into the chocolate of music. And I had her as a teacher for eight years. I studied piano for eight years up until high school, essentially. It's just, she was just an incredible teacher. She was also friends with Andre Watts, you know, so she knew what to do, you know, that kind of thing. Being part of this piano studio, every two months we had a recital, which scared the pants off of me. I just was That's a always... really great thing to get used to young, though. But I never got used to it. Aww. That's the thing. But you're right. I think that was one of the reasons why my parents wanted me to study with her, because it was a good thing to try to scare your children into performing. But I always remember just sitting there waiting and seeing my program on the name, waiting and thinking, oh my God, it's my turn. It's my turn next. No, I have, how am I ready? I'm not ready. Oh my, I'm going to make a fool of myself. All that chatter going on in my head, which unfortunately lasted through a lot of my education. Now I feel like I'm a little bit better about it, but you know, just little things like that where it was a learning curve situation. So every couple months she would have a piano recital and we would perform something on it if we were ready to do so. But the final concert of the scholastic year, which usually was in June, was called the end of the year recital. And this is when she opened up her piano recitals to invite other people, either their family members, friends, or other students in her studio to bring an auxiliary instrument, to bring something that wasn't piano, and to do chamber music, and to do collaborative pieces together. And they were always a blast. I was always excited, yet nervous, to play the end of the year recitals. So, long story short, my introduction to the cello, because I was the pianist in a piano trio with my sister, who played violin at the time, and we brought in a kind of colleague friend of ours from her youth orchestra to play cello. So, I remember remember listening to that sound and just being enveloped in it and saying, oh my God, I have to play this. This is the instrument. And so I went home and I asked my dad, hey, I really like the cello. Can I play the cello too, in addition to piano? And my dad's like, well, you know, we got some violins, you know, your sister outgrew her half-sized fiddle. Why don't you play that? I said, no, I don't want to play what my sister played. I want to be something different. I want to play cello. I'm yeah. telling you, I want to play cello. And he was like, okay, well, you can't quit. And I was like, okay. And this is the short version of what I tell a lot of people is that, and I never did, right? <laughs> I kept my promise, right? Which is true. So I started cello lessons. And actually, my first cello teacher was literally a neighbor of mine. She is a good cello teacher in the area in San Diego, but she happened to be a neighbor of mine. So I would walk with my soft case on my shoulder to cello lesson for maybe a 10 minute walk or something and walk home. And she was also a phenomenal teacher for me at the beginning and just set me up so well. She didn't put tapes on my cello. She, again, dipped me into that same chocolate of cello playing you know through the years changed many teachers actually because I would have probably stayed with Catherine Godden is my first cello teacher I probably would have stayed with her but she actually told me that she was shedding some of her students because she was pregnant and she was going to have a child and so she needed to have more time for her child so I bounced around to a few other teachers and in high school around my junior year that was around the same time that I had that transformative experience of playing Capriccio Espanol with the orchestra and I thought you know maybe 
I have a shot. So I talked to my mom about it and my mom really wasn't super supportive at first. And it took a lot of convincing of her because she knows that it's not an easy life and it's not a guaranteed financial situation. There's just a lot of unknowns that frighten or scare parents, right, for their children. But I think underneath all of that, she really wanted me to pursue something that I really was passionate about. And she saw that. And I think that she couldn't deny that for herself or for me. And I'm really grateful that she ended up having me change teachers in the middle of my junior to senior year. It was during the summer. And it also corresponded with a uh, breakup I had with my first, I guess at the time, boyfriend. I don't know. But it was like kind of a really immediate moment when I said, I'm going to pursue music. I just had this one day kind of said, you know what? I was toying with this idea of doing a double major. And I said, nope, if I'm going to do music, I got to do it fully. I can't teeter between the two. And I think at the time, I also felt like I had that edge over other people that were also very gifted, but just not necessarily as motivated. And similarly, I was pretty good at most academics as well, but I didn't see myself excelling in one field more than any of my other classmates who were all incredibly intelligent. So anyway, it was like one day the clouds parted and it was clear and I ended my relationship that same day and started new lessons with my teacher Ruslan Birkov at the time who really kicked my butt and he was very generous with this time as well but he really he sat me down on my first lesson and I played Dvorak Cello Concerto and he said you know why do you want to be a musician and I said some half-baked answer which in retrospect is something that I knew very little about I had a very naive look onto what that path is going to look like and he said, what's your dream school? And I said USC at the time, University of Southern California, because that was close to home and I knew it was a really good music program. And he had just, well, he had gone through that program himself, studied with Eleanor Schoenfeld and sat me down, point blank said, currently the way you're playing, can't get in. You're not good enough. Unless you really work, if you practice six hours a day, if you live, breathe, die music, cello playing, you're not going to get into USC. And I signed that contract in my head immediately. And I, every day of my senior year, rain or shine, literally, with a couple day exceptions. My mom and dad will tell you, Warren Torrens, my orchestral conductor in high school will tell you. And if there was a break during the school schedule, I would run to the orchestra rooms and practice. If there was a lunch break, run and practice. I was just a machine. I lost a lot of friends, but, but that was also because of my abrupt ending of that relationship too. A lot of them sided with him and I understand, but I was determined and I, this was my future and I needed to prove something to them. And I think that that's what actually fueled me for many years of my career was trying to prove to people that I was serious and I could do it and I could make it. I know a couple people have had moments like that where a teacher has just been like brutally honest about what it takes. And I think in some ways, I mean, I remember I switched teachers in high school and she asked me that question. I just burst into tears because I just didn't actually know. I had no answer for her and I just cried for the whole rest. <laughs> the lesson was over, basically. I think that question is important. And then the teachers follow up being like, if you want this, this is the commitment. Because it's too easy for people to just consider a hobby level of commitment to a musical yeah. instrument to be like enough to get you through. And really the truth is it's competitive. It's crazy. And if you're dedicated, your dedication and your attention to detail and how absorbed you are in that world will matter. And sometimes you just need to hear it from an early age to be able to decide that you want to do it. So I feel like that may sound harsh to some people to hear like as it stands, you won't do this. Yeah. But the reality is that you were told like an honest appraisal and you said, no, I want that. 
and you made it happen. Yeah, and I think for me, classical music meant, and it still does, but especially in that teenage side of me, really meant a lot more to me than it did to a lot of other people who maybe weren't pursuing music. It really was my safe space to be myself and to discover and experiment. And yes, it was under the scrutiny of my teacher and trying to get into a music school, but I also was identifying with all these composers and all the angst, like Shostakovich is an easy example for that, right? But I did solo, yeah, I, I soloed the first movement with my high school orchestra of the concerto, Shostakovich concerto, first one. But, oh, I should also mention, speaking of concerto soloing, when I started cello, I I was inspired by the cello, not just because of this cellist in the end of the year recital. I was also inspired by listening to Jacqueline Dupre's Dvorak Concerto with the Haydn C on the other. She probably could have been my most inspired musical hero because it was her and Yo-Yo probably at that point. And I made a goal for myself at the baby steps of even beginning how to learn cello playing. Like, how do you play in first position? I told my teacher I wanted to play Dvorak Concerto. And so she would every now and then give me small excerpts from the concerto to learn that easier spots you know and I you know I said I want one day in my life to play the Dvorak cello concerto with an orchestra that would be so cool that would be like you know bucket list thing and I won the concerto competition with my youth orchestra playing the first move in the Dvorak so I got the opportunity to do so and I think that was a moment too for me to say okay I really got this I can see that I have potential and I can see that if I continue with this drive and verve I can accomplish more of these goals and life dreams that I hope to and inspired by with all these recordings and live performances of chamber music and orchestral music and soloists that come to town. So I went to USC for my undergraduate with a full scholarship with a lot of thanks to a lot of people. And I first was studying with Nathaniel Rosen, but with a lot of complications at that school, he ended up leaving the school. And I then studied with Alexander Sulaiman, who is currently in China. I wish him the best. And I met some of my closest friends to this day at that school. And I also want to do a small shout out to Peter Marsh, who recently passed away and was my first real introduction to chamber music. You know, he was one of the violinists of the Lennox String Quartet. And after USC, I went, it was a shot in the dark. I applied for John Michel's studio. I didn't really know any of the teachers. I didn't have a lesson with anybody. I just said, you know, I know they're about chamber music. I'm just going to apply and see what happens. Turns out I get accepted to San Francisco Conservatory of Music into John Michel's studio. And I say, okay, let's just see how this goes. And I think it was just a student-teacher relationship that I don't think we knew that we were going to get along as well as we ended up getting along. Was it instantaneous? Was it like from the first lesson or did you sort of have to warm to each other? No, it was pretty instantaneous. Yeah. And I don't know what it was specifically. I was a hot mess. I, I'm sorry, John Michelle. But yeah, I just remember for the first time finally getting someone that understood and listened to what I was requesting and frustrated with and banging my head against the wall. And he was providing answers and solutions like a doctor. I really sometimes felt like I was walking into a doctor's office and I was telling him all my symptoms and he was giving me remedies for that. I try to model my teaching style off of him because I think he was just wonderful, at least for me. And of course, that's where I met Mark Sokol as well 
who actually the first encounter with him, I didn't like. He was trying to describe to me how to play my open strings on my cello in the opening of Bartok's first string quartet, which was my very first Bartok I've ever played. And he was trying to demonstrate with a drop. Like he wanted a really effortless, but full of weight in the stroke. And he was trying to allude it to throwing a baseball. And I just somehow, I just wasn't getting it. Or I just, something about the way he was teaching, I just, it was resisting. I remember that. And afterward, I was so upset and I just was fuming. But as time wore off and I had the second coaching through that, I realized, oh, he is totally right. I see exactly what he's saying. And he, I'm like, I get it now, you know, and one of those things. And after that, it was again, like I just drank the Kool-Aid is what people say, right? You know, but yeah, my time in San Francisco Conservatory, my time in San Francisco is some of my most precious memories and most precious experimentation moments in my life where I really felt like I could try things and not be criticized, judged for, and I could learn so much from my colleagues as well at the same time and the faculty. And so I did two degrees there. That's yeah. what I was about to say. I, you were there for two, for many degrees, right? And you stayed there for quite, quite some time. Yeah, because I felt in some ways when I was at USC that I had my head focused, but it still was with a bit of a cloud over my brain of being a little bit younger and exposed to not living with my parents for the first time and trying to meet friends. So I, I felt like I needed another couple years at San Francisco Conservatory to kind of redo an undergraduate degree, or that's how I so put it in my head. Well, I think it and takes so I, time to be mature enough to really... To know what you need at the school. Yeah, yeah, I think there's something very prescriptive about learning. Like what you said with like a doctor's office. Like you have to be able to do that for yourself too. And I think like the initial like immersion into a new environment, the transition from high school to college for some people just can be a blur. It's like Mm -hmm. so much. You're trying to take everything in. You're trying to become a person. You're trying to be who you're going to be, not realizing that like that's going to happen no matter what. So sometimes you just need like a couple years to be like a little bit older and say, okay, now this is what I need. Right. This is what my well, playing also, needs. And also at that point, of course, being a first master's there, I had all this amazing chamber music education and I was hungry for it. I was live, breathing, dying for it too, to use the Cavani string quartet term yet again. And that conservatory has this unique degree of something that I was highly interested in and wanting to continue to learn from these great pedagogues at my fingertips. I just wanted to elevate myself to that next level and immerse myself even more into chamber music study. So I I did. And that again, this is where I went to Tanglewood and wanted to get that orchestral experience. And I every summer loved that orchestral experience. It's not to say I don't like orchestra playing. I just think that I really came into my own or I understood my purpose much better being in a string quartet. Well, and I, and I think that's also hugely fair to say this is a, a side of my world that I've just not experienced the way I could. What is to say that Patty in a different strand of the universe didn't go to Tanglewood and say, oh my God, this is what I want. Yeah. You know, like you have to give yourself that chance. And also, you know, Tanglewood, some of the great chamber music experiences happen anyway. So I, I feel like you just, right. e- you just explored a, like sort of like a natural avenue and you're like, no, no, no. But, like it's good for an experience to affirm other things that you would rather. I don't think anyone would yeah. deny that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also I ended up obviously going to Rice afterward and mm-hmm. had those experiences, which are different than Tanglewood's experiences, but also a phenomenal heart working orchestra as well. I also looked to my most favorite mentors and they were all chamber musicians. And I thought, and I still believe, and I also am not shaming anyone who isn't a chamber musician, but I 
feel like being a chamber musician is being both soloist and orchestral at the same time. It's having both of those skill sets happen all at once. And you are kind of a jack of all trades. If you can master being a chamber musician, then you can master being anything. That was my take on it. Of course, I'm. that's totally a blanketed statement. That's not fully true. Well, I feel like but, a lot of my colleagues look to chamber music to fulfill something else that doesn't necessarily happen in the everyday orchestral experience. And I say that fully believing that orchestral music is an expression of chamber music in its own way. But oh, absolutely. you can't deny yeah. that like you're not going to play a Beethoven string quartet. Both the rep and the things that are asked of you are just, it's a different avenue and it speaks you differently. And ultimately, everyone should just do everything. So yeah, like I have so much respect for my orchestral colleagues too. I mean, that is no easy feat to get into an orchestra. So I'm not saying that we are the best of anything. I just was trying to evaluate and I just admired most the qualities of chamber musicians at that time. And I wanted to aspire to that. Well, and at San Francisco, you had them at your fingertips. You know, I think so much of it is when you have that resource and it speaks to you and you can take advantage of it, it makes sense that it would grow and your love for it would continue. There's no reason for it not to. Right. Anyway, so after four years at San Francisco, I really was determined at that point to pursue a chamber music career. Well, how do you do that? I mean, that's something that is a secret behind the doors spoken. No one really knows. Every story is a little bit different. So something that's popular to do once graduating from San Francisco Conservatory is to start freelancing, which makes sense because you're connected in the area and that's you maybe want auditions here and there. You know people and you get all the gigs and things like this. And I decided that I didn't necessarily want to do that for myself. And I remember having kind of a very meaningful conversation with past guest Evo. You know, he was like, well, don't you want to stay in San Francisco? And I said, said, yes, but I still feel like my career is elsewhere. So I was applying for doctorate degrees and one master's degree for a second master's. And I got into a couple doctoral programs, but I ultimately decided to go to Rice University to study with Norman Vischer, really. And also there was the nice full scholarship there as well. So I spent two years there doing a second master's. And that's where I wanted to meet more people to see maybe there's more musicians that want to start a chamber group. I did apply for a couple string quartets during my time at Rice. And a lot of it is how you know someone is how you are invited for an audition. So I had a couple of those. I had a very serious string quartet my second year with past guest Gabrielle's class. And we were trying to be professional, but it just didn't work out personnel wise. I also simultaneously was trying to create a string quartet with past guest Meredith Riley. That also didn't quite work out. But ultimately, by the end of my second year at Rice, I got a phone call from Norman or I had a conversation with him saying, would you do anything to be in a string quartet? And I said, yes, I would. Next day, I get a phone call from Ray Shows, who invites me to a audition for his string quartet, the Artaria String Quartet, based in the Twin Cities. And as you can see, here I am now. So that's kind of my career story, currently speaking. Along the way, I mean, there's so many details. So maybe in the future, I'll maybe focus on one part of my life. But maybe I was over explaining even now. But No, it was perfect. Also, what a Norman question. (laughs) I feel like that is like, I can imagine that conversation. And the intensity with which he would ask 
would you do anything to be in a string quartet? I love that. Yes. Well, I think so much of it is just what you said, knowing someone. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's where I've had a few people since when I've joined the quartet reach out to me and ask me, how did you get your job? Like, we just don't know what the path looks like. And I can't tell them much more other than my own story. And I just hope that sheds some light on it. And I think at the end of the day, it really ends up being, it's so incredibly important who you meet, where you go in your life and how you treat them, as in how you conduct yourself. I was very cautious of this throughout my studies. It's hard when you're young because you're a kid and you're trying to figure out how to be a person. And that's difficult. And a lot of that is like expressing yourself in various different ways. But also, I've talked to people about this before. Like when you're a fellow at Tanglewood, people will remember how you were at Tanglewood. Like, oh dear. If, I know, right? No, but I don't yeah. mean that. I mean that genuinely like if you were a party animal who was like unreliable and difficult to be around and it was because you were like, it's my summer, my summer festival and I don't care. Right. I remember that. Yeah, it's a summer festival, but like it's also a professional enterprise. You're meeting people, how you act around them. And that goes I, many ways. I also don't think I, you know, I'm sure I made a fool of myself more than once right. in some sort of setting, but also like it's just sort of like a really basic idea of like if someone walks up to you and says, oh, I need a cellist or I need a violinist, who do you recommend? Like, are you right. going to recommend the person that you genuinely are like, I don't know what's going on with that person? <laughs> like if right. you can carry yourself professionally in as many atmospheres as possible that's a good thing right i think there's a level of forgiveness that happens too because as you say we're all growing up and we're all trying to figure out who we are and what is important to us and yeah that does bring on some hurt relationships but i think that we all have the capacity to forgive those small moments in certain circumstances right i mean obviously if you do something where you don't show up for a gig yeah that's something that's unforgivable right and you say you're going to be there you know but yeah i mean there's certain things like that where there is a little bit of okay yeah maybe you're younger and maybe you did this but you're a more mature person now and you've grown into yourself and this is who you are today and but I, I think, think you that have to be there to see that more mature person like if your only snapshot of someone is something where you don't see the growth or the maturity or something else yeah. it's much harder to like turn around and make that yeah. recommendation I think at the end of the day, though, it does really matter how you conduct yourself and how you respect other people. Well, and that brings us, because we have arrived at your quartet where you are now. Mm -hmm. I know you guys are in the middle of Beethoven cycle. What projects are you, Patty, and your quartet, what are you excited about? What is happening right now? Yeah, so, so because of the pandemic, our normal Stringwood was postponed slash canceled no i'm sorry because we could not in any right conscience put students in a lodging situation that's just not a safe environment for covid and fortunately for 2020 we had to cancel it but 2021 i'm vaccinated my quartet's vaccinated we are fully going forward with stringwood and i cannot be more excited for that this year it's happening in august because normally it's happening in june right now but it's happening in august because we just wanted to make sure that enough people got vaccinated before they showed up to camp so that we can actually have a more real Stringwood experience. Stringwood was inspired by Tanglewood, frankly speaking, but similar to Tanglewood, there is such a bonding experience that happens at that camp, not just for the students on a student level and not just for the faculty on a faculty level, but an interconnection between the two. So I'm just very much looking forward to going back and really connecting with my students again and learning chamber music just as excitedly as I was learning it myself. 
And we're also preparing for an upcoming season to be determined for many details, but we're really hoping to have more normal concerts Currently, we are performing outdoors, so you can always go check our website, artariaquartet.com, to find any other upcoming performances in the Twin Cities area. Well, wonderful. Well, to bring back to the podcast for a moment, since it's been a year of the podcast, obviously you've covered a whole huge range of topics in the field and out of the field. Is there any topic that you wish you had more time to talk about? Because I know you've had to cut these down into hour, hour and a half long episodes. I think this is why I like having these group conversations or episodes like the Thanksgiving Spectacular and the Winter Extravaganza, because that's a moment for many of my guests to come back and be guests and talk about subjects that are something that I wish that we could have talked about further and something that I wish that I knew or had as a resource when I was younger too. This wisdom going into the music career. So, I mean, the topics I discussed were imposter syndrome and elitism in classical music. So I feel like upcoming season podcasts will hopefully have a few more of these cross-pollinated talks so that we can fully flesh out some more conversations like this. I would love to have a conversation about finances in the music career. Where's the money at? No, <laughs> where, where, where the, but seriously, how are the arts funded? I think that that's something that grant writing, you know, what is that? I wish that we had a conversation or people knew, even outsiders who didn't go to classical music school, you know, understood how the arts are funded and how underfunded they really are and really need to be. So I would love to have that kind of conversation in the future. Well, this is thrilling because I feel like what we are putting out there is the manifestation of like your dreams for your podcast. Mm -hmm. So obviously something that happens all the time with podcasts is sponsorships. What is Patty's dream? If you could have any sponsorship, who would it be? What would it be? Hiding Behind the Music Stand brought to you by... Huggies. Just kidding. (laughs) Oh, oh, man. I don't know. Something very, something very meaningful. That would be amazing. Like seventh generation. Something that is actually helping the earth. We have the dish detergent in our sink right now. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't have to be them, but I would love for it to be not something that's going to destroy the earth in some way. (laughs) Well, no wine sponsorship. So no 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 favorite vineyard. I mean, come on, Patty. Right? I know. I'll be I know. the earth. I mean, I, My gosh. I'm not going to say no to money. I'm not going to say no to a sponsorship. But I mean, if it's ideal, yeah, it would be something that would be not going to plague our earth. That's in fantastic. Some way. Well. Or carriage house. That would be great. Okay. <laughs> hey, I, know, I know some people there. Right here. Patty, we've made it to the final question. Who is your dream celebrity guest that you would have on the podcast? If you could have anybody of any kind of sphere of the world. You could just call them up and say, hey, I need an you're the next guest. episode. Augustine Hadalik. <gasps> oh, great answer. So into I would that. love to interview him. I'd be scared to death. Apparently but he's the love... nicest though. I yeah. of course Apparently he is, because all nice. the best musicians are the nicest and best people on the planet. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I co-sign this. I'm putting it out there. <laughs> well, so what is he? I mean, hmm, how would how could you get let's brainstorm? How could you get Augustine Hadlick? I mean, he has like a YouTube presence. I, feel like I know. I know I could just I well, I don't know. I would love to interview him because I have so much respect for him. And I can't believe that we are sharing the planet at the same time. 
He is just incredible. And I think what he does and how he plays is just so mesmerizing and so targeted to what I, as a child, loved about music. And he has a video on cats. Like, how can I say no? <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, Patty. I think one thing that's been established by your podcast, but also these episodes where you brought people back, is that the music world is incredibly small. You know, all of us yeah. know each other from these just tiny little moments that you don't realize are going to have an impact for the rest of your life. So that being said, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, I, I think you have enough. You're you, like you two degrees of separation. Augustine. No, you're like two <laughs> degrees of separation away. He sounds like a nice guy. I feel like he just needs... Next time he plays with, with BSO, Mary's going to strut right up there. Maybe I'll, strut's not the I don't word. think... I would, <laughs> She's not known for her strut. I don't but. strut, and I also just... You can... I just don't Mary, talk to you the can soloist. strut by his green room with a sticker of Hide and Behind yes. the Music Stand I, on your viola case. Yes. Offer him some Hide and Behind sanitizer. the Music Stand hand sanitizer and face mask spray and have a conversation about what podcasts he's might be interested in. Right. You can even, this can, is can very refresh, much not forced. Yeah. No, no, no. Can, I, can I refresh that mask for you? It I don't think little, I'll be able to use words no. in his presence. <laughs> I know. I think the problem is I'll just be like, remember that time you played and I loved it? Patty <laughs> <laughs> loves it too. Since I'm pretty sure, I can't remember, but I think he was one of my inspired musical heroes. He has been many people's, yeah. Check mark on that one. (laughs) Yeah. But I understand he's a very busy person. It's okay. Well, that is an excellent answer. And we cannot wait to see what else Hiding Behind the Music Stand has to offer. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go ahead and press that subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews and ratings help this podcast become more visible to others, and it's a free way to support this podcast. Another free way is to tell your friends and family about it, and you can always become part of the Hiding Behind the Music Stand family by donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Haydn Music Stand. Don't forget, there's a Spotify playlist available that contains all of the pieces we've discussed on the podcast. It's all great music, and the link is always in the description of each episode. And if any of your friends or, or family members happen to know Augustine Hadelik's godmother, <laughs> aunt, uncle, mother, grandmother, if any, any close personal connection, please tag her on Instagram at... <laughs> At Hyden Music Stand. This is on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just just all of them. Just somebody find Augustine Hadelik and tag him. <laughs> Hyden behind the mu- Hyden Music Stand. So thank we want to just give a huge thank you for Patty for being on her own pad- on her own podcast. Well, that's a thought. Podcast. Podcast. Patty. Oh my God! No. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get that patented right away. I want to thank Francesca for being a genuine joy to co-host with and we want to thank you for listening and we want to thank sushi for being so much fun to watch in the back of this zoom and a giant thank you to miss mary ferrillo who's doing an amazing mc job over here in boston she's forgetting about herself here got it covered well and i also want to thank you guys too for taking the wheel of hiding behind a music stand i mean it's fun to be on the reciprocal side of things and i think you guys did an amazing job so thank you so much for your time and listening to me and my story we just wanted and to being my you friends proud. you guys are awesome the best. <laughs> hugs from afar and their listeners may not get this but you are by far the best patty of all the patties that's true <laughs> even better than peppermint patty <laughs> Listeners, there's not that much competition. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday, hiding behind the music stand.
There's one final thank you that I need to mention, and that is to my Hidden Behind the Music Stand family, the patrons on our Patreon. Thank you for all your support this past year. Your encouragement truly motivates me to keep forging ahead, and I look forward to sharing a new season, season two, of Hidden Behind the Music Stand. And as always, thanks for listening. Sushi, say happy birthday! She will finally get a chance to answer all of her own questions that she's been collecting answers to for the last late year. Yep. <laughs> I was doing oh, so God. well. <laughs> scene for a moment. Scene. Okay, I need to piece it We'll so be right back. Oh, do you want to say that again? <laughs> no, because I just announced my urinary situation. <laughs> <laughs> because she was starting a child and starting a child. She was. <laughs> from scratch <laughs> anyway thank you for listening thank you for thank you for listening should we do that all okay together? That's, that's, <laughs> let's do that well, we could try i don't know if the audio is going to line up One, or not, but we'll see two thank, thank you, you for listening happy birthday we're just going to do it together Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Hide behind, behind the music, music stand. stand. No, Patty, you can't. No, talk. but she can also. She can. There's so many tracks. They can be. I know, but later. she's speaking in the wrong tempo. It doesn't work. Okay, here's the speed. One, two. Am I supposed to talk now? I don't know what's don't going know. on. We can call that. That can be no, the I, I think this is the blooper. I yeah. think this is the entire. I mean, I can't see me conducting a three-four bar to try to help us do this together. But it's okay. Now they know. Now they know.